to open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. And our subject this morning, once again, is prayer. And we've been looking for several weeks into the most famous prayer that we find in the Bible. And that, of course, is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Jesus was in the middle of of a discourse speaking about worship when he took some time to delve into the most important form of worship, which is prayer. Uh, The first part of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 is what we call the theological section, and it deals mainly with the issue of salvation and the only true righteousness that is accepted by God. And Jesus drove home the point in that particular part of the Scripture that man can never be righteous with God by his own activity. There is no one who is good enough to keep God's law perfectly. And Jesus kept emphasizing over and over again how far short that all of us fall of keeping God's law. God has a standard for us to live by, and the simple truth of it is that none of us can actually live up to that standard. God's standard is always perfection. And if you take time to read again the last verse of chapter 5, you find there that Jesus said that we have to be perfect even as God is perfect. Now that presents a problem for all of us, which is none of us are actually fit for heaven. And that was Jesus' point. And his purpose in that fifth chapter was to actually help us see how hopeless that we are and drive us into such despair that we have no choice but to seek for the mercy and the grace of God and cry out to God for our salvation. And God's grace is most vividly displayed in Jesus Christ, who is actually God's perfection. And the Bible teaches that Christ's perfection is given to us when we reach out to Christ and we put our faith in him for our salvation. And that's really the meaning of justification. To be justified from sin means that Christ's perfection stands good for our imperfection. And when we trust Christ, we are forgiven of all of our sins and then the guilt of sin is taken away. But as we saw in the last message, if you were here with us last week, that there is an ongoing need for a Christian to be forgiven of sin. Uh, Sin affects our fellowship with God. It doesn't affect our relationship because once you have become a child of God, you've received Christ by faith, you're always going to be a child of God. But we always, we're always sinning throughout our daily lives. There is the daily defilement that we have when we go against God's will. And so as a Christian, in order to maintain fellowship with God, you always have to go back to God, repenting of your sins, asking for forgiveness. Now, it would seem fitting then that if the Word of God tells us that even as Christians we still need to be forgiven of sins that we commit on a daily basis, that the Word of God would also include a place in the Lord's Prayer where we would ask God actually to keep us from sinning. And doesn't that make sense? If we're going to have to ask for forgiveness continually, it would be better for us to pray to God and ask Him to keep us from sinning in the first place so that we never fall out of fellowship with Him. What we've been doing in these studies in the Lord's Prayer is breaking down each section of it, each phrase that Jesus gave to help us to understand what Jesus actually means. And the essence of the next petition of prayer that we want to speak about today uh, is this idea of of sin and how we can be kept from sinning. Jesus said, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so that's the subject that we have today, the righteousness of prayer, in which we ask God, God, please keep me from sinning. 
Now, we want to go to the scriptures today and we'll start once again at the top of the Lord's Prayer. It begins in verse number 9, but the subject we'll discuss today is in verse number 13. So if you'll stand with me, please, and we read, as we read God's Word, and we'll start with verse number 9 and this familiar prayer that Jesus prayed. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word today, we ask you, Lord, that you would give us understanding of what you'd have us to know. I pray, Lord, that your people would be edified. I pray that you would strengthen us as we look into the Word today and help us to understand better what Jesus meant by this next phrase that we have of the Lord's Prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today we come to uh, what we call the last of the hour petitions that are found in the Lord's Prayer. You need to remember that there are two sets of petitions that are found in the prayer. The first three, there's two sets of three, and the first three petitions are what we call thy petitions. And when we go to God, we we don't come to God when we pray with a to-do list right away of the things that we want God to to do for us. But instead, when we come to him, we first have to recognize who God is. We pause to reflect upon the uh, greatness of God. We, We magnify God, and we acknowledge that he is the one who is our helper. After the beginning of this prayer where Jesus says, Our Father which denotes the relationship that we have to God, we come to those thy petitions. The first one is hallowed be thy name, and that is the reverence of prayer. The second is thy kingdom come, and that is the rule of prayer. The third petition is thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, and that is the rapport of prayer. And we have to keep that order straight. Now, not that we would repeat the very same words that Jesus said, but that we would have the understanding that when we come to God, we have to consider him first. We, we consider God before we come to those next set of petitions, which we call the our petitions. There is where we have our personal request. And so this next set of petitions are the our petitions, and they begin with this one, give us this day our daily bread. And we have talked about that and described that as the resources of prayer. That's the place that considers all of your physical needs. That includes things that we pray about all the time concerning our uh, physical needs of life, what it takes to sustain life. It's where we put the place where we pray for uh, people's jobs and we pray for the food that God gives us. We pray for uh, our livelihoods. That's the place where we put that when we consider the needs of others. And we never want to forget that Jesus does teach that there is a corporate nature to prayer. And that is when we pray, we always want to consider the needs of those that are around us. We want all of God's people to benefit from prayer. And then the next part of the prayer that we come to is the repentance of prayer. And this is where Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that is the first of two petitions that concern the spiritual man. So you have one petition that talks about the physical man. And uh, right after that, you have this next petition, the first of two petitions that deal with the spiritual man. And this one is about righteousness. 
Now, although the physical man does come first in the prayer, yet the spiritual man actually requires two petitions in the Lord's Prayer. And that would tell us that the spiritual man is always the most important. Your spiritual condition before God is always more important than any physical need that you actually have. So Jesus then ends the petitions with this last one about righteousness, which is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, if you think about your own prayers, you know that many times you'll ask God to deliver you from sickness. You'll ask God to uh, deliver you from some kind of financial pressure that you might be in, some disaster that's happened in your life. You might pray that God would grant you that you would never suffer. But how about this, that we go to God and we ask him about sin? Do we pray that God would actually keep us from sinning? So what about righteousness? Is that really worth praying for? Well, it turns out that this last petition of the Lord's Prayer is actually the hardest one for us to grasp. There's really more confusion over what Jesus says in the last petition than any other thing that he says in the prayer. And the problem comes about by this word that we have here, temptation. Why do we have to ask a holy God not to lead us into temptation? I mean, would we believe that God would actually take us to a place of evil and and God would cause us to sin? And I think that when you read that, you immediately see there has to be something wrong here. That doesn't seem to be the character of God. I mean, surely uh, this needs more explanation. And that is, of course, why we've chosen to break the prayer down. And we go through this line by line because we want to understand what Jesus is teaching. If he's giving us a model prayer, then certainly Jesus wants us to understand the point of what he's saying. So what we have to do first then is to examine that word temptation. What does the Bible mean here when it says deliver us from temptation? Well, we know that in the English language that that word always has a negative connotation. Temptation is something that's bad. It's never good for us. Uh, Temptation is to be strictly avoided whenever possible because we know that when we enter into temptation, we enter into sin. But what you also need to recognize is that when the Bible uses this word, that that is not the full meaning of it. And it's not the full meaning of the term in the way that Jesus uses it. Now, the word temptation here actually refers to a test or it refers to a trial. And the word standing alone actually doesn't mean something good or bad. It simply means a test. And how you stand the test that God brings you into, of course, uh, Uh, could be either good or bad. The outcome of it could be good or bad. But the word itself does not necessarily mean something bad, as we would use the term today. We read just a moment ago from the book of James, and in that first chapter of James, we can see that there has to be a difference of meaning, two different types of meanings that go along with this word temptation. One is a positive meaning, and one is a negative one. So if we go back to James chapter 1, we find there, James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But on the other hand, we go down just a few verses, and we get to verse number 13, and here James says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now you can see then from those two scriptures that there's very clearly a difference in meaning in the word temptation. 
So we're going to take those differences today and we're going to fit those into the Lord's Prayer to see if we can discover what Jesus means. Now first, today, I'd like us to look at the testing of faith. In James chapter 1, verse number 2, the apostle says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. Now, what we would say there is count it all joy when you come into various kinds of trials, different kinds of trials. Now, there, obviously, the Bible is not talking about sin because there is no good outcome that can ever come to sin. When a person falls into sin, that's always bad for him. So Jesus could not be saying here, God, don't lead us into sin. And that's clearly seen in verse number 13 of James 1, when the Bible says there that God never tempts anyone to sin. God is always righteous. He always seeks righteousness for his people. And there would be so many obvious contradictions that God, if God should lead us into sin, that I don't even think we need Uh, to spend time today going into all the implications of that. But as it regards the Lord's Prayer, I will say this, that if God did lead us into sin, then that petition that we have before this would be a very busy petition where he says, forgive us our debts or forgive us of our sins. That would be very busy if God was the one, in fact, who was leading us into sin. We get into enough sin on our own, don't we? We don't need God's help to do that. And so God's not, uh, Jesus is not saying that. And the scenario there would uh, be so confusing to us, I, I almost get dizzy even thinking about that, that we would ask God not to lead us into sin, and that God is the one who does that. And then on the other hand, God says you need to ask forgiveness for sin. Well, that leaves you chasing your tail. You don't know which way to go in a system like that. So James chapter 1 verse 2 is not talking about sin, but it's talking about a type of testing. And it's a testing that yields a positive result in our lives. You see, there are trials that God sends that will actually do us good. But doesn't that still leave us with a problem? Because here Jesus says, pray that you would not be led into testing and trials. And so is he then saying that we're not to ask God for something that's good? Now, do you see why the whole thing is confusing? It's very confusing. And I'm going to answer the question in just a few minutes. But I want us to first look at the positive outcome of the trials that God sends our way. And I want to give you two positives today that help you to understand just a little bit better what Jesus means. The first reason that God would send trials our way is to increase your strength. God wants you to be a stronger person. And so when God tests you, the purpose of it is to toughen you up. And so that when Satan comes to you and he comes with all those negative attacks that you're able to stand against the devil. And the Lord is very wise in the way that he does that because God knows how to measure your ability. He knows what kinds of trials that you can withstand. And so God is never going to send you a testing of faith that is too big for your current state of spiritual development. Now, we read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says there, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may may be able to bear it. Now, I preached a, a message on that a couple of years ago when we were going through 1 Corinthians. And I made the statement then that every trial that God sends your way would always be too much for you if God was not there to help you. 
There's not one of us that can bear up under any of the trials that come our way if God is not there to help us. But in our spiritual development, God does not send such an outrageous trial at the very beginning that we just give up. And we think, well, there is no hope for me, and so I just have to lay back here and let God do it all for me. But instead, what God does, he uses means. He, he begins to build our faith little by little. So we're conscious of the fact that, yes, we do need to lean on God, but God has developed us enough spiritually that we do understand somewhat of what we're supposed to do to endure that trial. We rest in and we rely upon the faith that God gives us. One thing that God does, he doesn't believe for us. God doesn't come to us and say, I'm going to take care of everything for you. But he gives us faith and teaches us how to use that faith to overcome the trials that we're in. Now, if you're a new Christian, you're not going to have a trial that is beyond your level of development. Now, you may not believe that right now, but it's true. God is not going to send you something into your life that's beyond where you are right now spiritually. If you've just been saved, you're not going to face the same kind of trials that I face. God's not going to put you in the same path that I'm in and give you the same trials that I endure. You know, one of the things that I've learned as I've grown up in the Lord is that there are bigger things that keep coming my way. And God keeps building me up in the faith and giving me greater spiritual discernment so that I'm able to deflect those things and and relieve myself from the brunt of those trials. And if you think about that for a moment, you know it's true because that's why many of you, when you're having a problem, that you come to me for advice. If you have a trial you're going through and you haven't quite figured it all out, sometimes you come and you ask me what to do. And that's natural because I've been through many times more things than you've been through. And another way that I could explain this is by looking at spiritual leadership. You know, the Scripture tells us that we are not to choose leaders in our church who are novices. And that means we're never to choose a leader that doesn't have experience, uh, someone that's been through a lot of things, endured a lot of things, and come through them. And there's a good reason for that. It's because God does not want to put people in a position of leadership where they can become disappointing because they can't handle the trials themselves. So one of the things that we would never do is that we would never choose a person out, for instance, to be a deacon in the church if we don't think that he would be able to withstand what I sometimes call the underbelly of the ministry. And what I mean by that is that there are many things that go on in a church that you don't know about. There are many problems that Christians have in the church that they're going through, and sometimes they have such difficulty with it that they let people down. And so you don't want to uh, choose a person for leadership who couldn't withstand this being disappointed by other Christians. There are people that you look up to that you don't know what's in their lives. You you don't know what's behind uh, that facade that they put on when they come to church on Sunday morning. But many of us that are leaders in the church, we do know those things. And if you have chosen someone to be the Christian that you're following after, and that Christian goes into some kind of sin or they fall, that can seriously hurt you. So you don't want to be, you wouldn't want to put a person in a position of leadership where they can see that and their faith is destroyed because this Christian that they've been following is not the person that they thought that they should be. And so uh, this spiritual development is very important for us. Uh, We just don't appoint people that that can't handle these, these spiritual trials that come their way. Now, some people will choose that they don't want to be in the leadership of the church because they don't want to be bothered by all the problems that come. 
Uh, they don't want to have to deal with somebody else's problems. So they say, well, no, I, I'd rather just back out of that. I'll go my way, and we'll let you fellows handle that stuff. Some people don't want to put in the time requirements. Some people haven't learned yet. They haven't spiritually developed enough to understand that God's business is always the most important business. And so they don't want to be leaders in the church because they have their own priorities. Now, that may be an oversimplification, but that's the way it happens a lot of times. Testing for a Christian takes time. Trials are God's proving ground for his people. And there are various examples of that we find in the Scripture But probably the one that most people recognize right away is when you begin to talk about Job. Job was a man of such character that God allowed, I guess you would say, everything but the kitchen sink to be thrown at him. Uh, Here was Job with health, and and he had his wealth, he had prosperity, but God took all of that away from him. And we know there's a lot of preaching today that says that God wants to be, wants every Christian to be healthy. He wants every Christian to be wealthy. He wants you to prosper in your life. Well, they have a lot of trouble with Job because God actually took away all of those things from Job. So there was a great trial of faith that came upon him, but each trial increased Job's resolve. Until he finally came to the place, he said, God, if you take everything there is away from me, if you completely destroy my life, Yet Job still said, though he slay me, I will still trust him. You see how strong Job became? Even death couldn't deter him. And that's what God may be doing with your life. Trials come along the way, and every trial is put there to bring you into the next stage of your spiritual development. Now, you may not like it at the time, but you can't deny this. God knows what he's doing. Every trial that you've been through strengthens you for the next one that comes along. Now, we notice about Job that it says, In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So strength comes out of those trials, and that's a good outcome. Now, the trial itself in the beginning may be a neutral thing, and then it becomes good when that trial yields the proper result. Now, the next thing that God may test you for is to increase your stamina. And what I mean by that is the staying power. Or if you prefer, you may say your perseverance. Uh, James says, the trying of your faith worketh patience. And the word patience there is the same word translated as endurance in other places, also translated as perseverance. So trial after trial increases your resolve. God wants people with determination. Jesus actually said that the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And so I guess perhaps we could put it this way. God wants some hard-headed people. Now, he doesn't want them hard-headed when it comes to leading them, teaching them the word of God. You know, as I've already told you many times before, some of you in here are just knuckleheads. I mean, you're really hard to get through to sometimes. God does not want people like that. I mean, hard people to instruct. But what God wants is some people who will not give up. Some people that will not let sin get in their lives. They're hard-headed about it. They're steadfast. They are determined people. And God builds our stamina in that way by sending us trials. Now, little by little, what God will do is test your endurance. And wouldn't you know that James had something to say about that in relation to Job? In the fifth chapter, verse 11, he says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job... And have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful 
and of tender mercy. You know what James means by that? He says, you have seen the end of the Lord. And he means, you saw what happened to Job. You saw the trials that God put him through, and you saw how that Job endured, and how that Job came out better in the end. The end of Job was better than the beginning, because God actually gave him more than he had at first. So you see that God may send trials because he wants to increase your endurance. And what God does, he places a a, a reward at the end of every one of those trials. When you go through the trial, God uses that as a means of reward. Now, you could call that obedience training if you want, but that's what God's doing to you. He puts you through the trial, and when you successfully complete it, God has a reward. Now, I don't want you to think that what I'm speaking of here is that Well, Pastor Smith is talking about that great reward that we're going to have in heaven when we die. That finally someday we're going to die and then God's going to give us all of these good things. Well, it means so much more than that. It's not what you get just when you die. And maybe that ought to be good enough for us. Surely it should be. But God builds faith and in the process, he gives you peace and assurance right now. God can give that to you right now in the trial. And if you are a Christian who is miserable in the trial that you're going through, do you know what that means? It means that you're failing God's test. If you're trusting God as you should, God will always deliver you from the the force of that trial that weighs down upon you and causes you to go in the wrong direction and feel defeated all of the time. God gives you the grace to withstand it. Now, he may not deliver you from the suffering. Sometimes he doesn't. But he always gives you the grace to go through the suffering. Now, let's back up here for a moment, and let's ask that question or answer the question that we had before. If all of this is good for us, that testing, the trials that God sends, if all of that is good for us, and that's what Jesus means in Matthew 6, 13, why does he say, pray that you won't be led into temptation? Well, let's think about that for just a minute. Why, why would you say that? Why would you pray that way? Well, how many of us Christians are going to go to God in prayer and say to him, God, please beat me up a little bit more. I mean, I just need to be beat up today. I mean, things just aren't hard enough for me yet. We're not going to pray that way. And it's because we have a sense of self-preservation. And so we pray that God would not lead us into a trial in the sense that we don't want to be led into one in which we will fail. Because when we fail, we fall into sin. You see, that's always the potential that's in every trial, that when God sends it, if you fail God's test, then you fall into sin. And so what we're asking God to do is don't let me fail. Don't lead me into a trial where I'm going to fail the test that you've given and I enter into sin. So we want to be delivered from the potential evil of every trial that God may bring. Now, what I think we've done here then Uh, so far, is to look at the positive side of a negative petition. Lead us not into temptation. That is a negative petition, and we just look at the positive side. But there's also a negative side that goes along with it, because temptation does have another meaning. And we've seen that already in the book of James. One side is good, the other side is bad. So now we're going to talk about the bad side of temptation. Number two today is the temptation of Satan. Now, now we know that we're talking about something bad. There are some people who say that the proper interpretation of Matthew 6.13 is to pray this way, that we would be delivered not from evil, but from the evil one. That would be Satan. Now, 
I do agree that the petition includes that, deliver me from Satan, but I also think that it includes much more than that. I think it means everything that's even remotely associated with evil. Paul says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Now here then is where I think we see the recognition of the powers of darkness that are so foreboding and they are so formidable that we cannot withstand them on our own. We seek righteousness. We're asking God that we would not sin. But we all know we still have that old nature in us. Uh, It's present in every believer. It has the potential to sin. And when you combine that with forces that are doing everything in their power to get you to sin at every opportunity, then what does that leave you in? It leads you in a disaster. That is a recipe for disaster. To have the potential to sin, to have the old nature, and to have somebody out there that is always trying to get you to sin. That's, that's a potential for disaster. Now, there's some people who believe, well, oh, I don't accept that because I don't really believe that the devil is real. There's no person like the devil. Evil is just an influence that's out there, and we really don't know where it comes from. It's just kind of floating in the air, and people do evil things. There's no Christian who believes that. We know that the devil is real. And the devil is attacking us every day and he does it from every angle. So let's talk about that for a minute. We need to be delivered from that. And all the time, we need to be delivered from evil because it surrounds us on every side. So we need to look at the problem first and then we'll look at the solution. What is the problem? Well, the problem is the superiority of Satan. And plain and simple, you can put it this way, you are no match for the devil. You're no match for the devil. About 30 years ago, I had a a debilitating illness that kept me home for four months, and I couldn't work. And so on those days, a long time that I was home from work, I would watch religious programming on television. And perhaps that's where I learned why there's so much evil in religious programming and maybe why you don't want to watch it. But I I used to watch the old PTL club, and that was before Jim Baker took his fall. And trust me on this, I didn't do that for my spiritual enrichment. That that wasn't my purpose. I have always had this thing about religious programming that I watch it for its entertainment value. I mean, it's all so silly. I mean, some of the things that come on there and the people saying what they do, I mean, it's, it's so crazy sometimes that I think, I think I need a good laugh today. So I'm going to watch and see what the religious people on TV are saying. So I would watch this, and, and uh, you probably know what I'm talking about. I hope you do. That uh, Tammy Faye Baker, who was Jim Baker's wife, she would come out on the TV, and she always was caked up with all this makeup on. I mean, she had so much mascara. She looked like a raccoon when she came out. And so... She, she would wear all of this makeup, and she would come out, and she would start to pray. And she would clench her fist, and she would say, I bind you, devil. In the name of Jesus, I bind you, devil. Get out of here. And I used to think, how silly, how foolish you are. You can't bind the devil. The devil is too powerful for you, powerful for you. And in fact, the devil will not be bound. He won't be bound until Jesus comes again and he takes that log chain and puts it around him and throws him into the bottomless pit. And until then, you're not going to bind the devil. He won't be bound. You're powerless against him unless you have some help. But you have to be aware of this. You must be aware of this. You're going to have to fight the devil. Now, he he may be powerful and he's not going to be bound. You are going to have to fight him. And the Bible tells you how you can fight him. 
Now, I don't have time to go into all of it now, but if you go over to Ephesians chapter 6, there you'll find a whole section about spiritual warfare and about how you can fight Satan. There's where you find that the Bible says you have to put an armor on. And it talks about uh, the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. You have to have this spiritual armor in order to do battle with Satan. And with those instruments, you can hold him off. But you need to be aware of this, is that you're going to be in this battle and you are not going to win that war. At least right now, you're not going to win it. You'll win the skirmishes. You'll win battle after battle. But Satan is such a person that uh, he is so adept at what he does that when you defeat him at one time, he goes back and he retools and he figures out a way to get around your defenses. And so the devil is always attacking. And what you have to do, you cannot trust your ability to defeat him. Don't underestimate him and don't overestimate yourself. Satan comes and he tempts with evil. The Bible says he has wiles, which means he has various methods of attack. But it all boils down to this one thing. Satan wants you to sin. He's going to try to cause you to sin. And what you have to do, you have to have this righteousness in the petition of your prayer where you say to God, keep me from sinning. Protect me from this. Help me with this. Now, sin surrounds us on every side, so we have to have God's help with it. Now, that's the problem. It's not a complicated one. You don't have to try to rack your brain to figure this one out. It's a very simple problem. Satan hates God. You are God's child, so he hates you. And so you're going to have to fight against him. That's the problem. Now, what's the solution to the problem? Satan is superior to humans, but those constant attacks that he has can be fended off in one way, and that is by the submission of the believer. Now listen to what James says again, James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's the answer to the problem. Submit yourself to God, and you can resist the devil, and the Bible says he will flee from you. What does it mean, then, to submit to God? How do we submit to him? How do we get the devil to take off and leave us alone? Let me give you three quick thoughts about submission that we'll be through today. Number one is you have to have reliance on the source. Since Satan is, more, uh, Satan is bigger and more powerful than you, you have to find somebody that's bigger and more powerful than him. Uh, some time ago I used this illustration. I'll use this again. There was an old movie that was on television that I remember watching, and the name of it was My Bodyguard. And there was this kid that was in school, and he was a weakling. And every day after school, all the kids would come and just beat the tar out of him. Every day after school. But there was another kid in the school who was this big, tall fellow. I mean, he was bigger than all the other kids. And he was, had this mean look on his face all the time. And, and he, he just looked like somebody that they ought to be terrified uh, from. And they, all the kids were passing around information about this big kid that he must have killed somebody. I mean, that's what they thought. This kid in school, he killed somebody. So nobody was going to mess with him. Well, this kid that was always getting beat up at school, he decided that what he would do is he would hire this big kid as a bodyguard. And so whenever the bodyguard was around, then nobody was going to touch him. And the bodyguard would come out there when these kids started to lay into him, and that bodyguard would come and he'd punch them or he'd throw them on the ground, beat, beat the stuffing out of them. 
And so the boy was okay. And I got to thinking about that. You know, that reminds me of Satan. Here he has these billions of demons out there, and he loves to catch you off guard, to catch you after school, so to speak. And he sends those billions of demons out there, and they get you down, and they beat the living daylights out of you. Every day they're doing that. They're just beating you up. And what you have to do is you have to have somebody bigger than that to protect you. And so the thing that you have to do, you have to go to God. He's somebody bigger. He's bigger than the devil. And so you ask him to fight for you. He's the source of your power. Now, most properly, we refer to that as the Holy Spirit's power. That's the part of the Godhead. He's the one that gives you that strength to fight Satan. And so it comes down to this. Ephesians 6 comes down to this, that when you yield to the Holy Spirit, then he makes all those instruments of warfare that's spoken of over there in chapter 6, that breastplate of righteousness, that sword of the Spirit, that shield of faith. It's the Holy Spirit that makes all of that operable in your life so that you're able to fight off Satan. That's what God does when you go to him and you ask for the source and ask for the power to help you to fight off the devil. Second thing that you need is reliance on supplication. And that's what we're in the middle of right here. We're talking about prayer. That's what supplication is. Supplication is when you ask God for a blessing. It means to humbly entreat God. And that's what you do in prayer. Now you see, prayer is the contact point that you have with God. I mean, there's where you get your communication. And so you have this petition of righteousness, and so you're asking God, God, help me not to sin. Help me stay out of that. That's a petition. And that's what we're speaking of here. Supplication to God. You communicate with Him, and you receive the help. That's the whole point of the Lord's Prayer. That's why we're learning about it. How do we get help from God? Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So those are important. You've got to have the supplication. You've got to have the source. And you have to have, number three, reliance on Scripture. Do not forget this part. You must have reliance on Scripture. Who is the master teacher? We all know the answer, don't we? The master teacher is Jesus. Who set the greatest example? Jesus did. And so what he did is he modeled the method for defeating Satan's strongest attacks. Now here I have to take you back to Matthew 4. You don't need to turn there. We're not going to read it right now. But in Matthew chapter 4, we find Jesus in temptation. And you might want to review your notes on that when we preached about it. And maybe you want to get copies of the sermon or whatever. But the greatest temptations came from the greatest tempter. And they came to Jesus when he was in the very weakest moment of his entire human life. The Bible says that Jesus was at the lowest point. He'd been without food for 40 days. And in that weakened condition, that's when Satan came to try him. Now, you've never experienced anything like that. Uh, You don't know what it's like to go through the trials that Jesus went through in that regard. But here's what uh, John wrote about it. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And those are the three areas of Satan's attack. That's where he attacked Jesus. It came to him in the lust of the flesh, the, the, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It was a huge temptation. And if you take the time to go back and read Matthew chapter 4, you find the way that Jesus was able to defeat Satan in the temptation. And you know what he did? He used three little words. It is written. 
And Jesus went back to the Word of God, and he pulled out the sword of the Spirit, and he began to quote Scripture to Satan. The Word of God was the defense. Paul said, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So there's the line of defense. I've never known anyone, anyone who is a Christian, who is very good at keeping from sin unless he had submitted to a study of God's Word. The psalmist said it as clearly as it can be said. He said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now, if you want righteousness, that's what you have to do. Here is a petition where Jesus talks about righteousness and he says the way that you can keep the devil at bay when he tempts you to sin is to keep throwing the word of God back at him. Keep slashing with that sword of the Spirit because it's truth that wounds Satan deeply. God has only given us one offensive weapon and one defensive weapon, and they are both the same, and that is the Word of God. Now, how is it offensive? Well, we we advance God's kingdom with the truth of God's Word because that's the only thing that will pull down Satan's strongholds. God uses the gospel, the word of truth, to conquer a person's heart. He uses that to convict him of sin and to turn him around. And when that happens, the kingdom of God grows. Whenever truth is preached, God's kingdom grows. So the word of God. That's why we preach it here at Berean Baptist Church. It's why we preach only from the Bible. I don't use anything else. Because the word of God is what Satan is powerless to defend himself against. Truth will always bring down Satan. And then we also use the Word of God defensively. We combat sin and error by truth. Truth is what destroys everything. Without the Word of God, we're helpless. And so we need God's Word, or we're going to be this way. Just like the Apostle says, carried away with every wind of doctrine, every sleight of man's hand, the cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. If we don't have the Word of truth to defend ourselves with, then we're going to fall into every kind of doctrine that's going on out there. That's what you need. So included in this petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is a prayer that we would use every means that's at our disposal, that God would use everything, all those weapons that he's given, all all those, that armor that he's given, that that would be granted by God, that we would not be defiled by sin. We want to be righteous, And so we ask for God's protection from sin. Now let me give you this last thought and then we'll be through today. Our must follow thy to be free from sin. Here I'm speaking of the our petitions and the thy petitions. You can't get the our petitions in front of the thy petitions because prayer will not work unless you are first of all totally submitted to God. You must reverence his name. You must let him rule over you. You must achieve rapport with him in which you agree that God's will is always best. And so when that trial comes and God says that it's best for you to go through this trial to build your faith, then admittedly, again, you're not going to like it at the time. It's not going to be pleasant. But if God says this is what's best for you and this is what will strengthen you and this is what will give you stamina, then you accept that and you say, God, let me withstand that test. God, bring me through it. Don't let me fail the test. Keep me from sinning. Keep me righteous in the trial. And then when the temptation comes, and surely it will, we're all going to have to go through it. Pray that God will give you all those resources at your disposal, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, you fight off all of Satan's attacks. 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Heavenly Father, keep me from sinning. Don't let me give in. Keep me pure. Keep me undefiled, Father. Keep me righteous. That's the last petition in the prayer. And you know something? That is the key to your success as God's child. Keep me from sinning. And if you pray that, and it's earnestly down in your heart, that's what you want. Keep me from sinning. God will bless, and you'll be a happy Christian. Doesn't take money, doesn't take fame, it doesn't take position. Happy Christians are those who don't sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and we thank you for the opportunity to look in your word today. How true we find this is, that there is temptation that comes our way. There's testings of faith and trials that come. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us in those trials, that, that we would never fail the test that you've given us. And we know, Lord, we will not fail if we are careful to rely upon the source upon the power of the Holy Spirit to help us, upon supplication, praying always, and also having that sword of the Spirit, that, that ability that we have to slay Satan through the Word of God. Lord, bless these people today. Speak to our hearts. I pray for someone here today who may not know you as Savior, is lost, and maybe can't even identify with what I've been talking about today. Lord, open up their hearts to the truth. May they see that the only way that they can be right with you is to have Jesus Christ as their Savior. Speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.